Hi, it's Radhika Jones, Editor-in-Chief of Vanity Fair. If you love digging into the week's political headlines, subscribe to Vanity Fair. Our reporters take you behind the scenes of some of the biggest stories from the campaign trail to the halls of Congress. Just for our Inside the Hive listeners, save 15% on a yearly digital subscription to Vanity Fair with promo code POD15. That's VanityFair.com, promo code POD15, for 15% off one year of all you can read, watch, and hear. Welcome back to Inside the Hive. What a very special holiday episode. I'm Emily Jane Fox. I'm here with my co-host and my full friend, Joe Hagen. Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas to you. Happy holidays. This season, I've been thinking a lot about not just surviving Christmas, but now that we have the Omicron closing in and we're all very concerned about suddenly we're going to be isolated again. Right. Uh, whereas mm-hmm. I was having a little bit of a social life for the last fa- past, fa- mm-hmm. past few weeks. And now uh, that's seeming like maybe a bad idea to do indoors. And we're kind of, ah, oh, I was such so bummed mm-hmm. when I started reading the paper. And, you know, this is a time where uh, you, I've had to really go back to remembering how to, re- to be mindful, to have mindfulness, to kind of like mm. achieve some sort of peace with where we're at because it's not ideal. Right. I think about our advertisers mm-hmm. that we've had for the last several months. I'm sure you've noticed this, but it's uh, Headspace, right? The the meditation mm-hmm. app. We have BetterHelp to help you find a therapist. Mm-hmm. People have incredible anxiety right now. I just was reading mm-hmm. in the paper. Uh, you know, they surveyed all these therapists across the country, and they just say it's like a shit show out there. You know, just a total meltdown mm-hmm. everywhere. They all their all their clients are just freaking the hell out, and you know, there's a lot of so. All of which is say, forget all that for now, but I've had to develop my own practice of like relaxation and mindfulness and how do I kind of deal. What's that practice? Well, that's listening to music. So for me, mm. it's been about just sort of like mindful listening, just like, you know, often we put music on and it's in the background and I try to put it into the foreground and just let it kind of carry me out of myself. You know, that's what music, mm. music at its best can do that. Sure. And, um, you know, it's a Christmas songs. Some of them are all right. Little Drummer Boy. I've always had a place in my heart for Little Drummer Boy. The tune. Mm. You, you remember the classic yeah. Bing Crosby. Not the Drummer Boy himself. Not him yes. himself. Although I always related to him. I always thought of, I always sort of projected myself into the Little Drummer Boy that I'd be playing the drums. Well, now every time I hear that, I'm going to think of you as as the Little Drummer Boy. Yeah. But um, well, before I get into that, any further into this thought, what do you do? you know, to kind of calm yourself. You go running. Running is my thing. I run every day if I can help it. And it's not really like a physical thing for me. It's a mental thing. And if I don't run, I'm a worse person for it. It really is my time that is only for me that I I either work stuff out or I don't. I, I choose to go inward or I don't. And it's just a block of time that I could think if I want to think or not think if I don't want to think. And it's uh, because I have committed to it every day. It is just uh, a, a point for me to just like 
assess where I am. Uh, it's a really good mind-body connection for me. And it is essential for my mental health. And it is just, it's kind of a non-negotiable and I work my day in life around that non-negotiable. And I've been doing that for a really long time. Finding something that allows you to either turn your brain off or turn it on and give you that choice to, to either give, go inward or not uh, is essential. And, and that may not be the same thing for everybody. I think it is absolutely vital at, at this point in time. I think you're right that there is so much anxiety right now, so much, um, how could we going, we be going back into the dark place again? We were just getting a, a taste of it. I feel so much anxiety again, just about, about, you know, every, everyone we know seems to either have COVID now or have been exposed to COVID now. And I, it's, it's a scary thing. It, plans are being canceled. So the anxiety is real. It's palpable. It's understandable. And I think because we're going into this little bit of pause, those of us who are lucky enough to have some days off of work right now, and and because this is generally a reflective period of, of time where people set resolutions and goals, I don't know that like the, the incremental, like I'm going to drink less, I'm going to work out more, that those are proven to be effective ways to set a resolution. But if we all commit to thinking about how can I make myself feel better in 2022 or commit to myself, what are, what are the small either changes in mindset or changes in behavior that I want to at least test out? You don't have to say I'm going to work out seven days a week in 2022 or I'm going to stop eating refined sugar or I'm going to get nine hours of sleep every night. Those things you're you're committing to too much. You're biting off more than you can chew. And you don't even know if those are going to serve you, right? So I think if you say, I want to test out getting into bed a half hour earlier in January, that's manageable, right? And I think if you just commit to a short amount of time, they say it takes what, four weeks to make a habit. So try something out for four weeks. And if you like it, if it feels like it could fit into your life, if it makes you feel better, it makes you think better, it makes you whatever, then keep it going. You probably have created a habit if it serves you. And if it doesn't serve you, you gave up four weeks of your life to something that you thought might, what's the worst that could happen? Well, I think that's great advice. And basically coming up with some practice that you can do on the reg and that makes you feel like you have carved out some space for peace of mind. My practice that I want to try out is uh, I have I have a a loftier goal that I don't want to get into, but my my actual practice is I want to get into bed earlier. Uh-huh. And we get into bed way too late and I set myself up for for failure. I'm a terrible sleeper. So if what I said to Leah is let's aim to get into our bed an hour earlier than we do right now and we can still watch TV. We can answer emails. I know Ariana Huffington would be like literally stoned me for, for <laughs> suggesting using electronics in our bedroom, but this is why I'm saying an achievable thing. Uh, I like this. And we're going to test it out in January. Yeah. And then that's going to be what we do. And maybe it'll stick. Maybe it won't. Maybe it'll stick 30% of the time. Maybe it'll stick 70% of the time. But that's what we're doing over here. Oh, man. I am pro sleep and I'm pro going to bed early. And I have to say that I have 
as somebody who ends up basically going to bed at like 930 every night, you know, uh, it's really uh, it's it's almost it's necessary now. You know, I need to have that full, rich, you know, seven hours at least. You'd be upset if you knew what time we got into bed up here. I mean, not always. Sometimes I stay up too late and I did last night, in fact. But uh, generally, I've been getting to bed early and it's been a, a huge thing. But as you know, I am like a uh, vinyl junkie, right? I'm a person mm-hmm. that has a giant record collection. It's a little out of control and a little embarrassing. But mm-hmm. I just wanted to say that what's interesting, you know, there's a vinyl resurgence and they're selling them like hotcakes. And a lot of people are going to have record players under their trees this year, I'm sure. Mm-hmm. And the um, vinyl pressing plants are all backed up because Adele's orders like, you know, 50,000 records on vinyl and all the other bands can't even get their records pressed. And this is like an actual thing. Oh my God. But wow. the reason I think it's an interest, the reason I love it and why it's been so essential for me is kind of the nature of the format, which is you put it on and you have 15 minutes and then you get up and you turn it over and you have 15 minutes. And when something is on spinning on a machine with the needle on it, you tend to pay attention to it, unlike if you just told Alexa to turn it on and turn it off, which is different, right? This is like a process of like putting something on a platter, you put the needle on, okay, now I've committed, you know, to this 15 minutes because at the end of it, I got to lift the needle, right? And for me, Mm -hmm. just the forced, you know, kind of attention paying, you know, the the deep listening, the consciousness of music and listening to it, and I enjoy it anyway— has been such a kind of a meditation practice all of its own. And I listen to, you know, two or three records a day just because that's mm. my habit. But which is all of which is to say, uh, when I was thinking about what I wanted for Christmas, what I wanted for Christmas is an episode of Inside the Hive that I could uh, indulge my, uh, you know, uh, sweet tooth for music and have somebody on the podcast who is an, a, a great fan and appreciator of music and somebody who has a deep knowledge of it and a deep feeling for it. And that's why I invited Don Was onto the program. And I can tell you why. I mean, he's a famed record producer. He's worked with the Rolling Stones, Elvis Costello, mm. Ringo Starr, John Mayer, you know, on and on and on. He's won four Grammys. He's like a, he's a big guy in the music business. The real deal. And now he is the president of Blue Note Records, which is the most vaunted, famous jazz record label in America. Uh, You know, I could list all the people on that label, but I won't. But essentially, I asked him, hey, dream up some uh, tracks that you would want to hear during this holiday season, not just Christmas ones, but just ones that make us feel good, things that, that you can tip us to, right, and make us feel good. And he said he'd be happy to do it. And so we're going to talk, and he's going to queue up songs, and we're going to create a playlist, which we will give you the address of at the end of this podcast. Cool. Yeah. And so then, you know, when you're feeling a little lonely or feeling a little cheery or which, you know, it's either Blue Christmas or Jingle Bells, whichever side of the spectrum you want to be on, uh, we'll have something for you here and just it'll occupy your time. And maybe it's... Some you know the practice of listening to it will make you feel good for a little while. So that's the idea. Well, also the opportunity to be inside someone else's brain and to hear what makes them feel good uh, sometimes can get you out of yours, and it can inspire you to be out of your head for a second. I I find uh, sometimes I'm just so sick of both my own music and my own thoughts 
that having the chance to have someone else's music and thoughts feels like a, a vacation. Yeah, for sure. Um, so this is going to be fun. I'm excited to talk to him. He's a big Beatles nut, so I got to ask him about the Get Back documentary. Ooh, and he's obviously he's please. he's played with and produced uh, albums for Ringo Starr, so he's he's sort of in with them as he's also in with Get the it. Stones. So we can pick his brain about cool people that we might want to know about. And it's going to be a barrel of fun. So let's ease on down the road. Let's do it. Happy holidays, everybody. Happy New Year. And we will see you right back here on the other side. Happy holidays, Emily. The 2024 election means this year is going to be chock full of drama and nail-biting suspense. You deserve a politics and news podcast with expert analysis. No spin, no BS, just trusted journalists talking about what you need to know. I'm David Plotz, and each week on Slate's Political Gab Fest, I sit down with The New York Times' Emily Bazelon and CBS News' John Dickerson to do just that. Join us as we unpack the latest in politics, news, and the courts. Listen to the Political Gab Fest every Thursday, wherever you get your podcasts. Don was welcome to Inside the Hive. <laughs> Good to see you, Joe. Yeah, I'm so happy to have you here. We just came in on a little uh, little Christmas tiding there from Duke Pearson. Nice, merry old soul <laughs> on the Blue Note record label. Don was your president of Blue Note Records. Yeah, I brought you here because I'm a big fan of the music that your label produces, and I'm a big fan of records and jazz and soul and all kinds of music and you are a legendary producer Please. i could list all the uh all the accolades that you've had grammys you've worked with the stones elvis costello john mayer you've played with ringo Starr, um mm -hmm. which is amazing you're a bass player and uh We've been we've talked so much about that Beatles documentary on this podcast. It's like it's the greatest. Isn't it? yeah. It's amazing. Yeah. And for you as a producer and a Beatles fan, just to, for all of us to see the creative process of yeah. these artists who we've revered mm -hmm. and to see that curtain get pulled back um, yeah. must have been uh, it's so exciting. Right. Um, well, it's mind blowing that the stuff that you hold in such high esteem, the, the music that that you know, meant so much to so many people, that the process that they go through is not that dissimilar to uh, everybody else. And there's that's still right. intangible magic that's got to appear at some point. And it's remarkable with the Beatles to hear what they sound like before the magic hits and to yeah. dig the fact that they have the perseverance to stay with it until yeah. it occurs and take 38 it's going to be where <laughs> some of those were like yeah. take 78 <laughs> yeah you know, the that's going to be the one you know and it yeah. only has to happen one time that's the, to me that's the beauty of making records is you never know 
and I, I get nervous and adrenalized before every single session, whether it's a 19-year-old making a record for the first time or the Rolling Stones, it's the same thing. You, you don't know what that intangible element is going to be that's going to transform everything. You just know if you stick with it, it'll happen. And yeah. your, your job is to be prepared to capture it at that moment, make sure the tape's run and that kind of thing. But it's kind of cool to know that they went through the same things. In the same yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it was so, um, so much anxiety and frustration and boredom and all these things that you yeah. might not have associated or at all with those songs because you just only heard the end result. So, um, you know, I... Um, you know, the reason I brought you on here, I was, I, I saw you, I was, you know, going through videos as one does looking at things that I was interested in. I saw an interview you did with Wayne Shorter. Mm. Wayne Shorter, of course, the legendary saxophone player, made many records on Blue Note. Yeah. And I, I was thinking also about everything that's going on in the news and, uh, you know, we have this surge in the pandemic and now, you know, what a bummer it is because suddenly you have to go back into thinking of being cautious and isolating and, and uh, I'm reading in the paper, you know, just mental health crisis in the country. And they, <laughs> the New York times did a survey of like therapists all over the country. And they're like, Oh mm -hmm. my God, it's just off the charts. Everybody's flipping out, you know? Yeah. And I was thinking about how, how it is that I get through, you know? Mm -hmm. And I, the reason I wanted to do this today is just to talk about, you know, music for me has been the survival you know, yeah. to listen mm -hmm. to music, to be with it. And um, I mean, obviously this is your area of expertise and you know what it can do and the power that it has for, for people. Yes. You know, for me in particular, I listen to records and the reason I love them is that uh, you kind of have to pay attention to them, mm -hmm. right? They're, uh, <laughs> they're on a platter. You got mm -hmm. 15 minutes. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, if, you, if you're listening to your music on uh, your Alexa or your iTunes or whatever, that's totally great. It's fine. Music is beautiful in any way you can get it. Uh, but it, it, it can sometimes fade in the background uh, because you don't have to worry about it. But yeah. a record is something you have yeah. to pay attention to. And there's something mindful about yeah. listening to a record. It's also physical. You know, you see that thing spinning around. I remember the first time I, I played vinyl on a turntable for my kids, my youngest kids who are now in their 20s. Yeah. And... Unlike, you know, we used to listen to music all the time, but there was no, you put a CD in, in the tray and push the tray and you don't see any action. They're just yeah. like boxes with lights, right? But when I put, I put the needle down on the turntable, we sat around staring at it like it was, like we were sitting around a fire. Yeah. It's good, it's good to have it be like an action verb, you know? <laughs> yes. Yeah, yeah. Well, and... One of the things I'm I'm a guy who who listens to a lot of jazz and that jazz is a music that if you give it active listening, if you mm -hmm. give it your attention, mm -hmm. it really yields more than so many other uh, any art form yeah. to me. I just I get so much out of it. And it, uh, it really is about attention and listening to other people paying attention to each other. Mm -hmm. It's improvisatory. The artists are very much in tune with each other. But but let's just get something straight right out of the gate is um, <laughs> when I talk to people and I'm like, they ask me what kind of music I listen to. And I say jazz. Mm -hmm. it, it's 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 a little test moments. It can be divisive. It can be 
people like, uh, you know, mm-hmm. they have cliches in their mind mm-hmm. that make them feel a certain way and you can't do anything about it. But what do you say to people who don't get jazz or they're a little like uh, maybe uncertain about it? Yeah, well, we encounter that a lot. Getting people to drop their preconceptions of it, that it's the province of uh, like professors in corduroy suits smoking pipes and yeah, analyzing yeah. a bunch of musical gibberish, you know, that yeah. that's the misconception. We, at a few points here, we, you know, we've, we've done market research just to find out what people think of, of jazz. And we'd find very often in, in these in these focus groups that you'd ask someone what they thought of jazz. Oh, I hate it. It's just a bunch of noise and blah, 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 blah. <laughs> you know, a bunch yeah, of yeah, notes yeah. and all that. And then we put on the Sidewinder by Lee Morgan. And they go, oh, I love this. What, what do you call this music? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So the challenge above all else has really been to to inform people that it's not some elitist, uh, exclusive music, but in fact, it's just conversation without words. Yeah, uh, I, I liken it to going to a, a party. You know, you 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 walk around there, are clusters of people, and you engage in different conversations. And sometimes you just don't want to hear any more of this conversation, and you move on. You know, but in jazz you're going to find someone who leaps out of the speakers and touches you and is speaking to you without words. Those are the best musicians, I think. I don't care about how many notes you can play. I really believe that there, there, there are two different types of music. There's selfish music and there's generous music. Selfish music is some guy sitting there with a guitar who can cram a hundred notes into a bar. And that's acrobatics. Yeah. You, you got to admire the practice that went into it. You got to admire the technique. But it doesn't make you feel anything. It's just like, yeah. wow, that's, that's quite a trick. <laughs> that's yeah, that's yeah, selfish yeah. music. But generous music is someone who's who's got emotions and, and feelings that, that are bursting out of them and they dig deep inside to find the source of it and they transform that into musical notes and put it out there and you receive it and you may not feel the same thing as the artist but you're going to feel something that's that's the definition of all art in any medium it doesn't have to be music you know yeah. someone feels something and expresses it and and you you know, you serve as a transducer and, and you convert that back into emotion. Yeah. Some, you know, music that helps you make sense out of your life. It's, it's tough being human, man. You know, we got a yeah. lot of crazy things. Forget, forget pandemic. We don't, we just, all the time, you know, we don't know if we're going to die in the next 10 seconds. And we, right. we walk around with that knowledge. Our loved ones, we get fired, you know, we, we you know, yeah. people get divorced. Everyone, everyone's life, their lives are so unstable, man. You know, that that's tough to deal with. Yeah. It's not easy being human. And I think music at its best helps you deal with it. Yeah. It makes you feel good. Yeah, at the yeah. very least brings you comfort, but sometimes really changes your whole attitude towards life without a musician uttering a word. That's the beauty of jazz. You yeah. know, it, 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 at its core, it's music that came over in the uh, 
African diaspora, right? And right. And uh, people brought here against their will and not really allowed to celebrate their culture. And they had to come up with a hidden language uh, to to express, you know, their deepest yeah. feelings. And that's, I think that's why it's so powerful because, you know, imagine the circumstances and the depth of emotional turmoil that you're going through. Mm-hmm. If you can find an art form that expresses that, that's going to that's gonna be a meaningful art form. And that's why jazz is popular all over the world, man. Like all these really disparate cultures because that music speaks to something really deep inside. And I just hope people... Listen to it as conversation. That's the the best jazz. It's just someone talking, but there's no words. They're using, you know, an instrument to to, to speak through. And you will, if you, you know, if you give it a moment, you will find something. There's going to be someone in there who means something to you. There's all kinds of music. Yeah, I'm glad you settled that, and it's so it rings so true. And it's one of the you know one way to approach it is to give it a chance and to put it on. And, uh, you know, maybe a lot of people don't know where to start, you know? Well, that's what we're here today to help them also, because you brought some, Mm -hmm. some songs Mm -hmm. and, uh, we're going to play some snippets of them and I'm going to create a playlist, uh, on Spotify for people to go check out and sample this stuff and listen, listen to it, uh, on their own time, which I'd recommend, you know, Sometimes people call it deep listening. It's not, it doesn't mm-hmm. have to be that deep. You just put it on and sit in front on. of it yeah. and, and just listen to it. And it's not going to bite you. <laughs> it's not, it's not going to bite you. Well, and um, it's interesting because the first uh, uh, song that you queued up for me, mm-hmm. um, Mode for Joe. Mm-hmm. By Joe Henderson. Which, um, it, it, as I understand it, it was like kind of your, your conversion experience. It, it applies directly to what we were just talking about. Yeah, uh, It's the first real jazz I remember consciously hearing. I, I think I absorbed a lot of it peripherally in the 1950s as a young kid. But in 1966, I was 14, and I was driving around with my mom. making me. She was making me run errands with her on a Sunday, and I, I didn't want to be there. I wanted to be hanging out at the mall with my friends and... Uh, so I was a crabby, unpleasant kid to be dragging around. And was an, eventually she gave up on it. She left me in the car with the keys and I, so I could play with the radio. And uh, I went to the R&B station uh, that I used to listen to, which is in Detroit, WCHB, 1440 AM. But they had a sister station, WCHD, on FM radio that no one had in 1966. Really. It was mostly elevator music, Muzak, you know. And, uh, but... But WCHD broadcast jazz, and on Sundays they'd simulcast so you could hear jazz on AM radio. And I landed on the station just as the saxophone solo from Mode for Joe was playing, and he just comes in with these anguished cries. I don't know how else to describe it. (laughs) Whoa, man, it was so intense. But it, it actually matched my frustration at being stuck running errands on a Sunday uh, and uh, and whatever else was bugging me at 14 I, I don't even I can't even imagine what <laughs> the problem was but I, uh, 
about 20 seconds into this, and we can play this section. It happens right at about a minute 26 or something into the song. The, yeah. he, he, there's this anguish solo, and then the drummer, Joe Chambers, who's currently still on the, the Blue Note roster making records for us. Wow. Joe Chambers kicks in with the swinging groove, and Joe Henderson kind of falls in line. And the message that came through to me as a 14-year-old was, Don, you got to groove in the face of adversity, right? Yeah. And yeah. Uh, this, it was so compelling that I listened to this thing and I got it. And by the time my mom came back to the car, I was a nice kid again. <laughs> <laughs> and and then I and I was aware that this music had had that effect on me. So uh, yeah. I wanted to know, know more about it. I went out and got a, a portable FM radio so I could listen to it at home. And. Uh, and started learning about it. But we, we can play this Joe Henderson thing. You'll, you'll know exactly what I'm talking yeah. about. Who's playing piano on that? I think it's uh, Cedar Walton, and he uh, wrote yeah. the song. Yeah, I, I believe it's uh, his yeah. comp composition. Yeah, amazing. Yeah. I love Joe Henderson. Mm -hmm. um, I don't know how people listening out there—they've heard of Miles Davis, they've heard of John Coltrane, and they, you know, the big bold-faced names. But he's—he's yeah. he's up there in the pantheon as one of the great, great tenors. I, I agree. Sax players. Agree. Yeah. Um, uh, now. A little later on in this um, list of uh, of tracks, and we could play it now, depending on how uh, attached you are to the sequencing here. But um, not at all. <laughs> you happen to have picked a song that was my uh, entry into listening to this kind of music that really instantly made me a, a jazz fan and made me start listening. And that's um, "Maiden Voyage" by Herbie Hancock. Oh, yeah. yeah, yeah. Which, uh, you know, I heard it like on headphones yeah. uh, with a stack of CDs somebody had given me. And I, you know, just got so absorbed and involved in it. And um, as you can tell from it has the um, Maiden Voyage as the title. It almost has in its arrangement and the melodies and the playing a kind of aquatic a mm -hmm. vibe to it, like you're descending yeah. down into like a submarine and going on some kind of Jacques Cousteau uh, documentary, you know? That's a, that's very interesting imagery. Just the yeah. fact that you, you could see that in there is testimony to the uh, evocative powers uh, 
Herbie's writing. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. It's a, it's a great song to play as well, too. You know, it's fun yeah, for yeah. musicians. Well, just the, uh, yeah, and I've heard many covers of it over the years, and I've always liked them. And, and the opening of it is very uh, iconic, right, mm-hmm. for people that pay attention to such things. And people probably know Herbie Hancock from other eras of his mm-hmm. career when he he'd even had a pop hit, right? Um, yeah, sure did. And he's always been very advanced and experimental yeah. and um, worked with electronics and all kinds of other artists, and he's very just open, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, let's just listen to the first couple of uh, sequences of this just to give people a sure. sense of what we're talking about yeah. here. Love those long lines. Yeah, those long, wild. those long, beautiful horn lines. You made me remember something when you were just listening to it now that I'd forgotten about. Uh, you know, I, he was a hero to me from the time I was a teenager. I, I I bought this album basically when it was new. I think you know, in the '66 wow. or something like that. Uh, and uh, later, you know, became quite friendly with Herbie. And one year he. He called me about, we had uh, a mutual friend who was being honored by the ACLU. And uh, so he said, will you, will you come play this with me? But, oh, yes, will you just come play with me yeah, for, to honor yeah. this guy at this, at this, you know, this banquet, right? So, of course, I was thrilled, but I was really nervous. And, and so I was trying to think of things that I could use to like throw him off balance as a musician. <laughs> yeah. so I said, let's play, let's play a Bob Marley song. He said, look, I haven't yeah. got time to learn anything new. He said, just learn Maiden Voyage. And I was like, oh, Jesus, man. <laughs> so I practiced, I, I just stopped what I was doing for about two weeks and I actually called a, a friend of mine, a pianist in Detroit named Luis Resto. And, I, and we sat on the phone for hours just playing. I just wanted to burn those changes yeah. into my deepest subconscious so I wasn't thinking and I could really first of all I really wanted to enjoy the experience of playing Maiden Voyage with Herbie but I also didn't want to embarrass myself <laughs> yeah well geez. so so I, I we went to uh, the the day of the show I went to the dentist right and and they gave me some kind of barbiturate drink and and Novocaine and I was out of it, and they put headphones on. They're playing Marvin Gaye, What's Going On? And I had the changes to Maiden Voyage so deeply enmeshed in my brain that I started singing the melody to What's Going On to the changes of uh, of Maiden Voyage. And wow. I thought, well, that'd, that'd be really cool. You know, if he gives me a solo, I'm going to play What's Going On. Wow. And you could do da 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 da. You know, you got to you got to change the scale a little bit, but you can play some semblance of the melody. So sure enough, it happened. 
he, he just looks at me and plays. So I stopped playing. What's going on? And then I, I had this wave of panic while I was into this because I could see he recognized it. And I thought, here, I'm taking my hero's signature piece and super. What? I said, what if he hate, hated Marvin Gaye? What if, like, Marvin hit on his <laughs> wife or something? <laughs> yeah, you never know. You, you never, never know. know. And so at the, at then I, I was gripped by panic in the middle of it. But we got through it. And he started, he picked up on it and he started playing along and it, it worked. Wow. So I asked him afterwards. I, I apologized after. I said, man, I probably shouldn't have just taken your song and done that to it. He said, no, you don't understand, man. Was like, when I first got out to L.A., Marvin Gaye called me up. And he said, come over to the studio. And, and he went over to, the, to meet Marvin Gaye at the studio. And Marvin was sitting at the piano. And when he saw Herbie walk in, he played Maiden Voyage on the piano for him. What? And, he, and so he was transformed back to that. So it, it turned out to be Incredible. a cool thing. <laughs> that, is, that was a poetic, um, that is pure poetry, that story. That's amazing. That's incredible. Wow. I, yeah. I can imagine your nerves, though. I mean, having to get into the shoes of Ron Carter, who's basically like the single most famous bass player in all of jazz. Yeah. Um, no, who, by true. the way, is um, still living, uh, still working, uh, and he's on Facebook all the time. Yeah, he's great yeah. on that. Yeah, yeah. Instagram. Yeah, yeah. He's on social media doing his yeah. thing. He's like right in the right in the pocket, man. In the 1980s and 90s, New York City needed a tough cop like Detective Louis Scarcella. Putting bad guys away. There's no feeling like it in the world. He was the guy who made sure the worst killers were brought to justice. That's one version. This guy is a piece of sh**. Derek Hamilton was put away from murder by Detective Scarcella. In prison, Derek turned himself into the best jailhouse lawyer of his generation. And the law was my girlfriend. This is my only way to freedom. Derek and other convicted murderers started a law firm behind bars. We never knew we had the same cop in the case. Scarcella. We got to show that he's a corrupt cop. They can go themselves. I'm Steve Fishman. And I'm Dax Devlin-Ross. And this is The Burden. Listen to new episodes of The Burden starting March 19th on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. And to hear episodes one week early and ad-free with exclusive content, subscribe to True Crime Clubhouse on Apple Podcasts. So you and I, um, you know, uh, were talking a little bit about, uh, well, I was telling you that a record that I had been listening to recently was this um, Pete LaRocca, another Blue Note rec- right. record. Yeah. Um, it was uh, Joe Henderson, who we played at the top, is on it. And, mm-hmm. you know, that's one of the things that you learn when you get into jazz is basically it's like, a lot of these people were mixing it up together and getting different conversations yeah. going, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, but this this conversation, I learned, uh, it's this is an, a, a, a interesting example of how these records kind of never get old in a lot of ways because you listen to them, you hear something new in them all the time, and mm-hmm. then sometimes you learn something about them that makes you listen to them in an entirely different way. Mm-hmm. And uh, mm-hmm. I told you I was listening to this Pete LaRocca. He was a drummer. I think this was his only Blue Note record. Um, yeah, that's true. He came back album. in the 90s and, and made a record for Blue Note as Okay, well. there yeah. you go. Yeah. 
But uh, this was made in the 60s, uh, mm-hmm. this Pete LaRocca record. And then you told me something. And as soon as you told me this piece of information, I went back and started listening to it again. <laughs> so maybe you could just tell people, what, it, what, what did we learn here? Well, I, years ago, through a, a record producer named Hal Wilner, I, I met uh, Carla Blay and Steve Swallow. And so I, I mentioned this record to Steve Swallow. And he said, you know, me and Pete, we, we dropped acid before that session. <laughs> Oh my gosh! <laughs> Which would, uh, you know, that's a, a a special kind of inspiration, I guess you could call it. Well, he said that the standout feature of the session for him was that, you know, Rudy Van Gelder, who is the great engineer who recorded most of the our 1950s and 1960s catalog and gave it a really distinctive sound. You know, a Blue Note record before you even know who the artist is, you can recognize that it's on Blue Note because he did some, some very specific things for Blue yeah. Note Records. Yes. Um, he was also a notorious germaphobe, right? So back wow. in the 60s, before, it's very common now, but he put some blue disinfectant in the toilet bowls, right? And wow. you just, people didn't see that. So so Steve Swallow and Pete Gavakum went, went back into the bathroom and they, they were tripping on acid and they saw the blue water in the toilet bowl and they stood there and stared at it <laughs> for like an hour. You know, I mean, as he described that, I wasn't there. But uh, I, it, it definitely gave me a, a great perspective on the, on the album. It, it's, uh, it's a great record. <laughs> it's, oh, it's, it's a fantastic record, it's, yeah. Uh, you know... Uh, says something about the correlation between psychedelic thinking and uh, music. Yeah, 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 yeah. Just to talk about Rudy Van Gelder for a minute, there's a name yeah. that uh, you'll see on the back of a lot of jazz records. It's an important name. Unless you're really steeped in this stuff, you might not know what it means. But as you said, he recorded so many amazing albums in his home in Inglewood, New Jersey, and, yeah. uh, you know, later on in a studio that he built. But, you know, we're talking about a guy that basically wore a lab coat, right? I mean, just he's a, he's a, a sound scientist, right? He's he, an optometrist by trade, actually. He was wow. an amateur audiophile who built his own wow. equipment and, uh, and started recording while he was a practicing optometrist, recording in his parents' living room. And you can see all these great pictures of... Thelonious yeah. Monk and Miles Davis sitting, you know, yeah. near the Venetian blinds and the lamps and all that. Yeah. And it, so were, yeah. all you kids out there who are, you know, maybe you're unemployed living in your mom's or a house or your dad's house. <laughs> come on, just build a studio right in the living room, you know, bring over some musicians and start recording, man. You can get, yeah. you can become a legend. You um, really can, yeah. You know, and you talked about the Blue Note sound and... If you are somebody who's, uh, you know, a lot of people are going to get record players under their Christmas trees this year, right? I hope so. It's, yes. There's a there's a huge revival in in listening to records and listening yeah. to vinyl. I'm finding, you know, kids my children's age, you're 14 years old, they're interested in it. They mm-hmm. they want to get a Taylor Swift on vinyl, right? Yeah. Yeah. And uh, and by the way, this is having this wild effect on the record business because there's only like a handful of pressing plants in the world and. Yeah. You know, maybe you've read in the New York Times that Adele orders up 30,000 records and puts clogs up the entire system because there's not that many pressing 
We were victimized by that album. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. And it's a lovely record, but, you know, on the yeah. vinyl front. And um, But you're in the business of taking some of these old recordings that Rudy Van Gelder recorded and then preparing them for a new pressing, right? Mm -hmm. People out there listening, if they're on their streaming systems or Spotify or Apple, you'll see it says remastered, right? Yeah. And here we are talking to Don Was, uh, somebody who does some of that. What is remastering? What do people, what does that mean to people? Well, it means you take the master tapes and you can re-equalize them, which is essentially a very complex tone control. You can boost the treble or boost the bass or boost. Yeah. You can get more specific with it. You can also compress it a little bit, yeah. which kind of crushes the dynamics, but has a has an interesting byproduct of making cymbals go shh. And, yeah, yeah. Uh, so the, but I can tell you this, you can change the total character of a record with one false move. It's a yeah. really precarious undertaking. And you have to, well, at least in my opinion, you have to enter into it with a sense of great respect for the music that you're remastering. And also for the listeners who've come to know that music sounding a certain way, it's really arrogant, I think, to go into somebody else's music and think you're going to improve it, especially when that music has uh, stood the test of time the way it was. Yeah. So when I first got the gig at Blue Note, we were coming up on a 75th anniversary and we wanted to do a 75th anniversary vinyl reissue series. So I went out to Englewood Cliffs and I met with Rudy Van Gelder and I and I said, you know what, what are we supposed to do? What what's this actually supposed to sound like? Because I don't want to change it from what you did. I kind of like to get it back because over the years people remaster all the time. So if you yeah. listen to if you take the, the Maiden Voyage album, there are all these different incarnations of it that aren't necessarily marked as different incarnations, but someone remastered it for CD a couple of times, and they weren't always improvements. Uh, right. Rudy Van Gelder, in fact, went back and remastered his own work, and they were they were not so great. Man. That, that's the probably the last person you want to give a free hand to as someone who hears his youthful mistakes and wants to rewrite his history, because it may be those mistakes that make it great. Yeah, they're, they're not perfect records, uh, but they got a feel to them. Anyway, so we, we started doing yeah, well, and but the, it's but like I, having an I, old I, pair I, of jeans with the holes in them, and you don't want to patch up the holes. So you like the jeans with the holes. That's exactly <laughs> right, man. That's exactly exactly right. So it's a. I didn't do a very good job of it, to be honest with you. I, I was trying to match it to the sound of other records. Now, we we do our audiophile records with a guy named Joe Harley, who's a, a very well-known person in the audiophile world and, and is also a, a big fan of, uh, of Blue Note Records. And he remasters with a guy named Kevin Gray. And they truly channel Rudy Van Gelder. They don't have to go back and compare it to the initial pressings. They know what he was doing as if they did it themselves. They've been doing it for a long time. And, I, and they also understand things about different presses, certain... Certain brands of press, vinyl presses sound more conducive to Blue Note records than other ones do. So they're very finicky yeah. about the plant and the plating and who's doing the work. They're like 12 steps 
It's not not like AA, but there just happened to be 11 or 12 steps where you really can impact the way a record sounds. And you have to be careful and you have to have knowledge of all, all the different aspects of it. And they do now. So I'm very proud of the vinyl we're, we're putting out now. Yeah. And, and f- fans, especially Blue No fans, they can be... Uh, finicky yeah. and highly oh, vocal yes. about <laughs> absolutely <laughs> i learned the hard way man you got to get it right and i'm proud of yeah what we're yeah doing you that. don't want to there's some record shop owners i know that you know they'll get up in your grill about different uh remastering and different sounds yeah. of different things for people out there who um you know are thinking a lot of this is archival music yeah. a lot of music that is from the past and uh, maybe they want to feel uh, more like they're with it. Uh, and that's, you know, and then there's even a bigger adventure trying to figure out modern jazz, which is like a, a whole other beast, right? Mm-hmm. And you have all kinds of uh, interesting people. But there, there's a record you guys put out this year that I really have come to uh, appreciate and love um, that is sort of a merger of the two. And that's uh, the Micaiah McRaven. Oh, oh, interesting. Uh, yeah, good record. Yeah, yeah. So he's this uh, drummer from Chicago, young guy, incredibly talented uh, drummer and multi instrument uh, instrumentalist, and he was uh, given access to uh, sort of the Blue Note archives. It appears like mm-hmm. to listen to these classic yeah. records by Art Blakey and the Jazz mm-hmm. Messengers, and uh, you know, a record with Elvin Jones on drums, and then mm-hmm. take that music. And then integrate his own band into it to create mm-hmm. like a third thing. Mm-hmm. And with much more hip hop kind of injected into it. Yeah. Um, and, make, you know, kind of, um, it's, this has been done before uh, by other artists. Yeah. Um, in the 90s, there was some, ex- Blue Note has a history of kind of opening up yeah. its archive to allow mm-hmm. this kind of thing. But this is a really successful version of it, I have to say. Mm-hmm. And... Um, I just wanted to uh, quickly play a little sample of that for the people and then ask Great. you about it. because and right. This is the last track on that record, and it's just, you can't not uh, groove to this because it's just so killer. This record under your Christmas tree, you're going to be very happy uh, <laughs> uh, on Christmas because that is a um, a really wonderful record, and I I would say kind of a great gateway into thinking about listening to jazz because you kind of get in touch with the classic stuff, mm-hmm. but also this with this modern sensibility. Yeah. Um, so tell us a little bit about some of the uh, newer artists that are coming onto Blue Note, and we have there's some in your um, in your list here, we can touch on too. Yeah, but uh, well, when I first got the gig, one of the, the 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 first task was to go back and identify what it was about Blue Note music over the seventy five years that preceded me. You know that that made the music remain relevant and uh, and vibrant after a long period of time. It, it, but you listen to old Blue Note records; it's not like you're going back 
to a museum or something, you know, yeah. they still speak to you. Yeah. So what what was going on there? And what I found was that in every era, the founders of the company chose artists who were pushing the threshold of what was already, you know, of what the popular music was of their era, and also reflecting the times that they lived in. Yeah. So every step of the way, they recorded Thelonious Monk in 1948. They could have picked any jazz musician, and they chose the, the guy who at that point in time was certainly the most challenging, innovative yeah. musician, completely reworking, you know, the harmonies and the, and the, the way you accompany the soloist and what a solo consisted of. He, he, he changed everything, but he wasn't popular in 1948. It took, it took no. about 15, 20 years for people to catch up to him. Just beginning with him, man, it changed... Every, the records he made for Blue Note in the late 40s changed everything and impacted the way every subsequent musician made music. Then, you know, five years later, he put Art Blakey and Horace Silver together to form the, the Jazz Messengers, which introduced elements of funk and a backbeat and kind of gospel yeah. funky piano over yeah. a bebop setting. And that became super popular. And you go to the label in the 60s, and you had guys like Herbie and Wayne Shorter and you had Ornette Coleman and Eric Dolphy on the label. Even the commercial artists like Jimmy Smith. To me, Jimmy Smith was a revolutionary. He did things with a B3 that no one on earth had ever done. Even though the music's very accessible, you have to realize that he did that first. And also thematically, what people dealt with, uh, you know, Art Blakey free-for-all was reflecting the anger and the resentment in the air around, you know, preceding the passage of the Civil Rights Bill in 1964. Black Rhythm Happening, which, you know, we just played a sample of it, is a yeah. revolutionary album that goes a little bit underappreciated, I would say. I'm really glad McCusick chose that. And, and that reflects a kind of sensibility of you know, of 1970s black nationalism that I think was a really important thing that was going on sociologically that comes through in the music. Well, by that same token, then, the musicians who are making music now, anyone who's under 40 years old grew up listening to hip-hop. <laughs> you can't yeah. miss it. You can't... You had to be in a vacuum. If you So if you're going to be a relevant musician to the times that you live in, as opposed to someone who's just repeating stuff that happened 50 years ago, that's going to turn up in your music. So the, the, the music that the most vibrant players today are making, you know, they understand the fundamentals of what came before, but they're doing something brand new with it, which I think is what Blue Note Records has been about and the reason that the music's endured for 82 years. So a really good example of that is Robert Glasper. Mm. About a, a month into me having the gig as president of the label, I met Robert, and he came in to play very rough mixes of what was to become an album called Black Radio that really... He wasn't the first person to put elements of hip-hop and jazz together, but he did it in a really unique way. He's got his own way of doing it. And he played me bits of this album, man, and I was transported somewhere else. I felt like, this is really exciting. I've never heard anything like this before, which is a hard thing to accomplish these days because yeah. we've heard 
almost everything. <laughs> yeah, but this, yeah, yeah. this thing blew my mind when he played it for me, and it became super successful. And, you know, the, he did a version of Mago Santa Maria's song, Afro Blue, uh, yeah. that, that Coltrane recorded. And if you go to, like, any high school jazz band concert today or, or go to a student concert at, uh, you know, Berkeley School of Music or something like that, invariably someone gets up, one of the students' bands gets up and says, we'd like to play a Robert Glasper song right now called Afro Blue. <laughs> 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 and uh, he, he just has impacted the way young people approach the music. His impact, I think when time passes will be viewed as to be as significant as Charlie Parker's influence or, or Coltrane's yeah. influence. He really changed the way everyone approached this music. We could play that if you want. Well, yeah, I was going to say that just as an introduction to um, Erica Badu is mm -hmm. on it mm -hmm. and uh, seems like she wrote some lyrics to it. Um, mm -hmm. And that, that's like a whole new uh, layer on, yeah. on this classic tune. So uh, I'll just play it right from the open and we'll uh, give it okay. a, give it a cool. little sample here. Well, let's just go back to what we talked about at the beginning, about it being conversation, right? Yeah. So if you, if, if you and I are just having a free-form conversation, we're going to talk about experiences that, that we've had and things that, that have passed through our lives. And it's either going to be an interesting conversation to you or it's not going to be, but we talk about what we've absorbed, right? Yeah. Well, musicians are the same way. So Robert is a guy I've I've gone to see him play, and he's quoted, you know, he knows I'm sitting there, so he, he plays "I Can't Make You Love Me" by Bonnie Raitt. He'll quote some lines in that, in, incorporate that into a solo. But in the same solo, he'll play a bit from a McDonald's commercial and a bit from Jay Dilla and a bit from Monk. I mean, I've literally seen him combine Jay Dilla and Monk in in a solo. So you reflect your experience and if you've had interesting experiences you're going to make interesting music and i think that's what it's all about just keeping yeah, the conversation yeah. real i'm not that interested in young musicians who want to go back and recreate 1960s music because they they weren't yeah. there they they're not going to get it exactly right they're probably going to miss the true essence of it i'm interested in musicians who approach it the same way that wayne and herbie did in the 60s, who approach music with a completely open mind and want to do something that hasn't been done before. But do it as yourself. Be, a, be a, a, the strongest, most communicative version of you. And Robert pulls that off as well as 
any musician who's ever sat behind a piano. Yeah, yeah. Well, you're reminding me of um, a year ago, I had John Batiste on this program. Yeah. And, uh, you know, he grew up like not only learning jazz and New Orleans style mm -hmm. jazz, he was also playing like the theme songs from the video games that he was playing. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah, he yeah. was really absorbing things from all directions. And that's partly yeah. what's exciting about this conversation. It's like it's constantly percolating with what yeah. is happening. Right. And with what is talk about the yeah. yeah, the Micaiah McRaven thing is very much like it's both uh, it's like an interpretation of history. It's mm -hmm. got the feeling of like the fallout from Black Lives Matter movement and, the you know, the summer of last you know, year before. And yet it's trying to understand how that relates to the long story. Of jazz, mm -hmm. yep. and um, uh, I kind of love that. And now there's now there's another Blue Note record that um, is really beautiful by, you know, a uh, an older journeyman sax player, Charles Lloyd. Mm -hmm. He's put he's been like on having a renaissance, you know, yes. yeah. as of late. And um, he's a really interesting guy. I've read some interviews with him in the British newspapers, and he's uh, really a funky, soulful dude. Oh yeah, um, greatest yeah. Yeah, and he made a record uh, with like Lucinda Williams on it, mm -hmm. right? Which is not yep. that's talk about a left turn, you know. Yep. But the, but what a wonderful uh, concept! So maybe you could tell me a little bit about um, in our listeners, like yeah. um, what this about this artist and about how this record came together. Well, Charles is in his eighties now, right? And yeah, and yet miraculously is at the peak of his powers as a musician. Yeah. He's a beautiful tone. He's playing better than he ever played in his life. I can't think of any parallels, actually, to someone in their 80s who's at peak <laughs> performance yeah. level, yeah. right? Amazing. Um, mm -hmm. And I'm a fan of his going back to the 1960s. Charles Lloyd was the first jazz artist to understand what was going on in alternative rock and roll music. And he played at the Fillmore, you know, like opening for the Grateful Dead and Paul Butterfield right. and, and way before Miles went to the Fillmore, you know, like yeah. when I say way, you know, but back then a couple of years was a huge difference, right? Yeah. Uh, and and he had one of the first million selling jazz albums with Forest Flower that, that he kind of brought a rock and roll band ethos to jazz. It wasn't, he wasn't playing rock and roll, but... And and he came from a really wild background in Memphis, where he not only yeah. played with jazz musicians but played with Howlin' Wolf and and yeah. ran into Elvis as a young man and stuff like yeah, that. Yeah, Elvis so saw his a, band. Yeah, yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so he's been a hero of mine. When I first got the gig, I just cold called him. I I'd, I'd never met him. I didn't know him, and uh, I called and I talked to his wife for a while. And they were they were signed to ECM, and you you can't. Poach. You can't, you know, it's really unethical. It might be illegal actually to <laughs> <laughs> offer someone a con. But I, I just let him know that I was a big fan. And then when yeah. the, when he left ECM, he, they called up. And uh, I've just been so thrilled to, to get to know Charles. He's one of a kind, super interesting cat, very spiritual guy, very streetwise guy at the same yeah. time, a, a unique blend. And, and his, there's something in his tone. You know, the, the last album is called Tone Poem. And that's really, he is a tone poet. You know, he's, yeah. if, if music is conversation, 
his conversation is poetry, right? And yeah, just yeah. having to do with the sonics of, it, of his tone, it's so soothing. And he was very interested in making some records that reflected the uh, musical jambalaya that he grew up in the middle of in, in Memphis, which I could relate to because I grew up in the middle of the same thing in Detroit, with all kinds of styles colliding. So he formed this band, The Marvels, with Bill Frisell and Greg Lease and Reuben Rogers and Eric Harland, who've been playing with him for years, those two. And uh, yeah, one night Lucinda came and sat in with him. I happened to be at that show. It was in Santa Barbara. And I, I've produced Lucinda Williams' records before, as has Greg Lease, who, who was playing pedal steel in, in the band. And Bill's played on her records over the years. So it was a very natural thing. And they just clicked, man. We They they did a version of Masters of War. It was beautiful. We put it out on the day Trump was inaugurated. <laughs> wow. Yeah. And it was just came from yeah. that show. And then the chemistry was so good, we, we did a whole album. Wow. That was then, therefore, the best thing that happened on that day. Um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's really something. Um I'd love to I'd love to listen to a little sample of this, why don't we um... Let's do it. Yeah, sure. play so much of that here on the podcast but boy yeah. i could just listen to that whole thing from beginning to end what a amazing it was incredible you know it, she was supposed to sing it but she got there she got to the session late that day and so they were just run through it to make sure they knew the, the changes and everything and that happened and it was like all right <laughs> yeah there, there yeah. won't be a vocal on this one the vocal yeah, child's gonna be the vocalist yeah incredibly beautiful um yeah and I, I want to just say this also that um, one of the things I love about jazz music, you know, we, I grew up listening to, you know, metal, punk, Kiss, right? I, I grew up with all kinds of alternative music of all kinds, and uh, you know, there's a music for every season of your mm -hmm. life, right? But jazz is something uh, because of the way it's made and the kind of communication that we've yeah. been talking about, is it's a lifelong art form. You know, it's a journey. And some of the great artists that people have heard of, just maybe by name, they might not know the music, but Duke Ellington and Count Basie, these people played until the day they died, right? Yeah. And yeah. some of their greatest works were done when they were older. Yeah. And there's something really, um, I find really um, kind of... Uh, 
wise and educational about that. Like there's something you can learn from the fact that a guy like Charles Lloyd can sound that good and be that mm -hmm. soulful. And in fact, all the layers of his life are adding to what that sound yeah. is, right? Exactly right. Yeah. yeah. I mean, uh, you can't say the same thing for like other kinds of music necessarily, like uh, an 80-year-old playing punk rock, maybe, but it's just not the same, right? It doesn't express uh, what is actually happening in some ways. But um, I don't know. In I, any you event, know, I, I, yeah, I've produced the Stones for 30 years, you know, and uh, I know people have attachments to the early records as yeah. as as do I, you know. But uh, I think that a lot of what they do, what they've done in the last 20 years, is overlooked. Yeah, and it's. It, I think it's remarkable that. Did you see him on this last tour, man? They, I did. Know, yeah. yeah, it's vibrant, man. Oh so yeah, well, they're they're kind of changing what it means to be closing in on eighty years old. Yeah, well, I loved Blue and Lonesome with their their blues yeah, cover thank album. You. Did, yeah, you you produced yep. that, and uh, yep. you know, it kind of got to the heart of it because they, you know, when they were just kids. <laughs> their their heroes were basically their age, and you know, yeah. or at least getting on to there. And uh, similarly, the blues can be uh, something that you know, uh, as you get different layers of your life on, you get more textured and interesting as a blues singer. I don't know if uh, our listeners have heard of all of these artists, but I hope you're taking notes. But if you're not taking notes, I'm going to tell you about a playlist you can look up on Spotify, <laughs> and I'm going to post about it on social media. And you can go to it. And when you're at your holiday function with your family and you just want to change the mood of the room, or maybe you want to get into another room by yourself and get away from your family, <laughs> you can also do that. And you can mm -hmm. pull up this Inside the Hive holiday special playlist that I'm going to post up. It's going to have some of the tunes and some other ones that we haven't gotten a chance to play. Uh, the hand selected by Don was this legendary producer. This I'm just so grateful that you're on this program right now talking to this. It's, a, it's an indulgence for me. You know, we're usually talking about the news on this. On this oh, thing. okay. Okay, yes. Yeah, this is a, new, a news-oriented show. Uh, well, you're very knowledgeable, man. You know, I, I'm I'm yeah. impressed. I, w I wouldn't have known that it wasn't a musical theme show because uh, I like what you're saying. I, I agree with all of yeah. it, actually. Well, <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, music uh, music is my um, is my uh, great passion in in life uh, outside of my uh, journalism day job. And uh, whenever I get a chance to bring it into the fold, I do. I'll tell you a little uh, shop secret here. Uh, on Inside the Hive is, I, you know, I've profiled some people for our magazine, for Vanity Fair. Mm -hmm. I profiled Beto O'Rourke. Mm -hmm. And Beto O'Rourke is a big music fan. And uh, I remember I went to his house, and um, he had uh, like a Stan Getz record on the turntable. He had mm -hmm. a turntable. And he mm -hmm. had a record collection, which he said was mostly his dad's that he had inherited, but he was trying to expand it. And um, and uh, one of the sort of tokens of our uh our exchange was that I gave him a record and it was an art pepper record, uh, called living legend, which is one of my favorite albums. Mm. And, um, then this article came out and the article caused him some, uh, indigestion cause he was running for president and it caused mm -hmm. a big stir and people know that story. Mm. But a year later I, uh, I texted him and I said, Hey man, just wanted to catch up with you, see what, what you're doing. Um, and I hope there's no uh, hard feelings about how things played out with, you know, 
your presidential mm-hmm. run and everything. He's like, no, man, it's fine. He was very gracious. Mm-hmm. And he said, no, but you know what? That record you gave me is like the best thing I've heard in the last couple of years. <laughs> That's awesome. And, uh, and I was like, oh, so I felt like, wow, all is forgiven for sure. I mean, that's that felt great. And um, not that I needed his forgiveness, but I just was happy that we could have that little exchange. And um, that's, that's really important. Yeah. And, uh, you know, when I'm out there in the world, I find that people I, I meet people and. Uh, even if we're talking about politics and the state of the world, uh, we can have a little side conversation about uh, yeah. music because it's a passion that connects a lot of people. And in yeah. this crazy world that we're living in right now, God, we could lose, use anything we can get to connect, right? That's it, yeah. And um, I hope that uh, that's why I brought you on here for this holiday thing is like that special is just this week, this holiday week. Mm-hmm. is so that we can uh, think about ways to kind of like reconnect with our humanity and reconnect with, you know, things that um, kind of turn uh, off the world and turn on something inside of us instead, which is, I think we could use a lot more of that nowadays. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, that's good. So like two uh, of the biggest artists on your label we haven't even talked about. So mm-hmm. let's do that for a minute because I, okay. you, uh, one of the one of the songs you queued up here is uh, "Daybreaks" by Nora Jones. Now Nora Jones, yeah. Yeah. Um, she's on in my house all the time right now because she makes so many beautiful Christmas songs. But you put a mm-hmm. you got a, okay. a track on here. Tell me a little bit about your, you know, knowing her and what her uh, story is. Well, I love Nora, man. You know, uh, she's obviously been the most successful artist in the history of the label and. Yeah, uh, her success has underwritten a lot of great music that probably wouldn't have gotten made if we didn't have mm-hmm. some yeah. of that in the coffers, you know. And uh, so yeah, sure. every jazz music, she she's the patron saint of blue note jazz, really. Wow! But also an incredible artist, you know. As a record producer, I learned that uh, I, I think of the line that the speakers are at at the end of the recording console, think of that as like a 50-yard line in a football game. Yep. And who can jump across the speaker line and actually come down and get close yep. to the goal? It's a, to jump out of the speakers, it's, well, it's being audiogenic. That's that's the word I, I use for it. It's like, <laughs> I love know, it. Cla- you know, Claudia Schiffer, she looks great. She jumps off the page. You, you turn... To the pages yep. she's on, and whoa, fuck, and, and yep. uh, it draws your attention to the genes that she's advertising That's right. or whatever. You know? yeah. So, audiogenic is the same thing. I experienced it for the first time with uh, producing Garth Brooks. Uh, wow. Who I will admit that I was in the studio with him, but I didn't fully understand why he was the biggest artist in the world till he stepped up to the microphone for the first time. And he leapt out of the speakers so far that it was almost like he was behind me. Wow. He had, and I don't know what that is. He doesn't know what it is. I, I've worked with other singers who have that kind of charisma. Mick Jagger's one. Aretha Franklin is is one. Wow. But they just leap out so far. And it's some combination of huge personality and charisma and some physics. I don't know. Nora Jones has got that. And that's a reason that that Come Away With Me album has sold, you know, Whatever it is, oh, yeah. 30 million sure. records or something. Yeah. Uh, she's just got this incredibly warm, beautiful voice, and she's just got this incredible gift. 
And what I love most about her is that she she could keep she could have kept making that record over and over and over and over again and she, and toured it for the rest of her life and everyone would have been thrilled every year, but she's constantly trying to push the boundaries of what she does. Uh, when we celebrated the 75th anniversary of the label a few years back, uh, we had a big concert at the Kennedy Center that that drew, you know, we had, you know, all the old artists, the legendary Lou Donaldson was there playing with Dr. Lonnie Smith and McCoy Tyner and Bobby Hutchison. Mm -hmm. And Nora played with Wayne Shorter, who's also, you know, on the label and, and began his career recording for Blue Note with, I think, the greatest records that we've ever released. Uh, to me, uh, Speak No Evil by Wayne is the crown oh, jewel yeah. of, the, of the catalog. Yeah. And they hadn't played together before. And it was so powerful, man. I, I, I remember I, I emceed the show, so I was just sitting in the wings. And when they played together, something incredible was unleashed. And I, 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 I got really choked up. I, I, like there, there were tears in my eyes from it. And it wasn't that I felt sad. It was just I felt like I was something grand about the universe was being revealed. Okay, two incredible artists playing together. So after the thing, I, this is, I, I don't normally tell people what I think they should do. I, I, I assign artists <laughs> that, that, that yeah. uh, we trust and we let them do their thing. Right? But uh, I did mention casually to Nora, like, I'd be very interested in, in hearing an album of that collaboration. And and she she heard it, and, and she, went, she went out and made that record, and she called Wayne and... I love what they did together. Should we listen to a little bit of it here? Let's do it. is Wayne Shorter? He's 86, I think. Wow. Again, yeah. kind of an amazing thing. I mean, I'm just, I, I think that if I could impress upon people listening to this podcast, one thing is just um, what an amazing, uh, of all the things that are going on in the world, 
to have these legends still among us mm-hmm. needs to be acknowledged and and uh, and you should really like um, go check out. Of course, you got to speak no evil. One of my favorite records, right. uh, which is uh, you know a high water mark in in his career, of course. But I mean, he's still playing beautifully, and he's playing with modern artists, and he's yeah. vital, and he's mm-hmm. making a. I believe he's making um, uh, like an opera with yeah. Esperaldo Spalding. I mean, guys yeah. like yeah. Uh, as you know on top of it as he's ever been, and that's so mm-hmm. inspiring. It's, um, it's, he, he's he's one of a kind, and uh, yeah, yeah. And so, great. in that case, we have a conversation between the young and the old, mm-hmm. right? You've got another record which we didn't get to talk about, but uh, Dr. Lonnie Smith, mm-hmm. uh, you know this great organ player with this beautiful turban on his head, like a beautiful mm-hmm. man, uh, mm-hmm. interesting, almost like a wizard type character, mm-hmm. and he's playing with Iggy Pop. Right, mm-hmm. which is there's yeah. one that you didn't expect to hear about, right? What a strange yeah. <laughs> merger! Yeah. Yeah. Uh, just briefly tell me, like, how that even came together. Well, you know, I'm from Detroit, so I was, Stu just played at my high school, uh, you know, and I ended up producing Iggy. We had some, we've done a couple of albums together. We did wow. something in Detroit, maybe like eight years ago. It was just a, it was for the Grammy Museum, and we we were interviewed and we played a couple songs together. And after the thing, he pulled me aside in the dressing room. He said, there's something I really want you to do for me. I said, yeah, of course, anything, man. He said, I love Dr. Lonnie Smith. I want to record something with him. Like, Great. And, and, uh, <laughs> and it, it took a little while to get it organized, but uh, we all went to Florida and uh, went into Criteria Studios one day, and we cut three tracks, and uh, the chemistry was in- incredible. It was m- the most unlikely pairing, but they really clicked and it's all it's all live all happened in the room and and, on this one day and uh so the three of the songs are included in the his new album wow and uh, i'm really glad we you know dr lonnie passed about a month ago oh my uh, god i didn't even know that i'm sorry to hear that yeah no it's a shame man he was one he is another one one of a kind absolutely and really innovative musician on the instrument and and just you know, I love. He played bass with the pedals. You know, on the B three, and he was one of the funkiest bass players I ever heard in my life. You know, put him right up there with Bootsy Collins. Wow. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, that's the beautiful thing about um, listening to organ music is, yeah. you don't often they don't need a bass, right? They're working it out on the left hand. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so um, I'm so um, into this. I could have you here probably for another hour, but, but uh, you know, <laughs> I know you're a busy man. You got a schedule. And, uh, but I, let's, let's talk about lastly about um, uh, Gregory Porter. You know, I remember um, a couple of uh, years ago going over to my brother-in-law's house and him pulling it out. And he's like, you got to mm-hmm. hear this. Man. He was just, you know, and then, then you hear that voice. This guy's got just one of the most great voices. And like a lot of classic um, jazz icons has, an interesting chapeau on his head. Mm-hmm. Uh, he wears a, fun- a funky hat. You need mm-hmm. that, you know. Yeah. And uh, but tell me, like, um, did he come into the label while you were running it, or did he? <laughs> I got the job at the label because of Gregory Porter. Uh-huh. I was in New York, uh, so you know, going on eleven years ago now, and I was producing an album for John Mayer called "Born and Raised," and we took one yeah. night off. And I looked through the Village Voice just to see what was going on, and I saw that Gregory was appearing at a little club called Smoke 
almost up near Harlem, right? Yeah, yeah I know that one. And uh, I heard him on the radio. You know, it was one of those things where I was driving and, and I heard this track of his. And I'd never heard of him before. And I was just blown away. I had to pull the car over. And I, I just thought he was one of the most expressive singers. I didn't know why he wasn't the most famous guy in the world, right? Just, yeah. I uh, shazammed him and uh, went out and bought that album, which is his first album. There's a song called Illusion that's on a, a first album called Water. That's just like uh, um, just a brilliant composition and a, such a riveting vocal. So I went to see him at Smoke, and I sat through all three sets just drinking coffee and eating ribs, and I wasn't there on business. I wasn't trying to hustle anything. I was just there to dig it, and I stayed all night and just had the most wonderful time. The next morning, I was having breakfast with an old buddy of mine, a guy named Dan McCarroll, who I knew as a drummer who played with Sheryl Crow in the 90s, and his wife Jane was my assistant in the 90s. And he had risen through the ranks and was now president of Capitol Records. Holy and we God. just, we, didn't, we weren't even talking about business or anything over breakfast, but at the very end, when we got up to split, I said, wait, is, is Blue Note Records still part of... Uh, of Capitol Records, because if it is, you should sign this guy I saw last night. And unbeknownst to me, Bruce Lundvall, who had been the president of Blue Note for about 30 years and just was one of the most beloved guys in the music business and a real visionary, beautiful cat, he was not well, and he, he had to retire, and they were looking for someone who would take the legacy of the label forward. And right then, I said... You should sign this guy. And he said, no, you should. And he offered me the gig at Blue Note. <laughs> Holy shit. That is one uh, fortuitous breakfast, man. It was a really monumental breakfast and uh, really <laughs> life-changing. Uh, but the first call I made, obviously, when I signed the contract was to Gregory's manager. <laughs> wow. Amazing. And, uh, and he's just... He's just I just can't believe that we get to work with someone that great in his prime like that. He's yeah. he's just, he gets better and better with each record. And I've seen him play now, you know, 30, 40 times. And um, I'm just slayed every single time. Wow. Yeah, let's, let's have a little sample here. Good. Hey, Laura, it's me. Sorry, but I had to ring your doorbell so late But there's something bothering me I really am sorry, but it just couldn't wait Is there someone else instead of me? Go ahead and lie to me and I will be the lead you're not in love with him and this fool can see That the rivers of your love flow uphill to me Hey, Laura, it's me Oh, man, that is beautiful. Yeah. Yeah, Damn. Yeah. It's just the soul is dripping off that guy. Yeah. Oh, That's yeah. so, so wonderful. And uh, there's a little sort of like shading of Bill Withers in there that I really mm -hmm. am just, that That's hits the spot for me. Yeah, yep. yeah that yeah, really yeah. does it for me. Yeah. Get him on the, you know, 
get him to cover grandma's hands, man. That's like, that's right. I think right he's done that. I've spot. seen him sing it. Yeah, I've seen Is him do right? it live. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. That's a great. Yeah, no. Oh, God. Good. I, you, love that song. I should offer you a gig as an AR man at Blue Note Records. That's I'm very here for you. Uh, I'm here call. for you, Don. <laughs> <laughs> um, that is stupendous, I got to say. Um, I just want to say how grateful I am that you came on. You know, it's uh, it's treasure for me. It's really a birthday, uh, Christmas present, I should say. It's a Christmas present for me, and um, uh, or holiday present, or whatever it is. It's the solstice. We're going into the long. Uh, we came out of the long dark, and we're going into the to the light, and uh, that's what the whole season's about at the at the end of the day. And um, for me, music is light, and uh, you know, it's um, something I hope. Uh, people have enjoyed and I know I've enjoyed it so thank you so much yeah thank you for having me man I've had a really good time you you, 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 you run a tight ship here man. very good <laughs> <laughs> I don't know we're gonna have to talk to my producer about it um, but to you out there in the holiday land uh, enjoy the holidays and happy new year let's go into 22 with uh, you know taking our optimism where we can get it and uh, and hope and pray for the best and be safe out there Take care of your brothers and sisters, and uh, let's do it. Let's do it. That's our podcast this week. I'd like to thank Don Was for coming on this program. A very special episode indeed. Thanks to the producer of this program, Brett Fuchs. Thanks to the people at Cadence 13. If you like what you're hearing, stay tuned for 2022. It's going to get hot. Hit subscribe. Please support our sponsors the way they support this program. And we'll see you in 2022. There are a lot of issues on voters' minds right now. Six big ones could help decide the election. Guns, reproductive rights, immigration, the economy, health care, and the wars overseas. On the Consider This podcast from NPR, we will unpack the debates on these issues and what's at stake. You can listen to NPR's Consider This wherever you get your podcasts.